Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. There's a virus out there that doctors and other health experts want you to take very seriously, starting right now. And it might not be the one you're thinking of. Yes, of course, you should be doing everything you can to avoid the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. But have you forgotten about the flu virus? Yep, it's that time of year again. Flu season is coming, and with COVID, you need to be ready like never before. We're talking today with Dr. Michael Smith, WebMD's Chief Medical Director, about what happens if there are two deadly viruses spreading at the same time and how to protect yourself against both. Dr. Smith, thanks for joining us. Great to chat with you guys. This is something that public health experts have been thinking about for several months, the prospect of having COVID-19 pandemic happening at the same time as seasonal flu outbreaks that happen every year. Tell us about why that's such a concern. Let's take last year's flu season in the U.S. as a starting point. It's always tough to know exactly how many people are affected, but the CDC estimates in last year's flu season, anywhere from 39 million to 56 million people were infected with the flu last year. Wow. And that includes about 740,000 people hospitalized and anywhere from 24,000 to 62,000 deaths. I know that's a big range. It's just tough to know. But the the point is, that every year the flu season puts some pressure on the healthcare system. Now it's pressure that we're typically prepared for. That's why you don't typically hear about you know, shortages of PPE, ICUs built to the rim, though that does actually sometimes happen in certain areas. And, but that on top of the numbers that we're seeing with COVID, you can see why there's good reason to be concerned, especially if we don't see the COVID hospitalization rates fall significantly in the next couple of months before the peak of the flu season really starts to ramp up. You know, thankfully, we're starting to see a downturn in certain areas where COVID had been running rampant, like like the South. And hopefully, Mm -hmm. we'll continue to see this trend so we're not in as bad shape as we fear going into flu season. There's actually some potential good news about the flu season that we can, you know, we could talk about in a little bit. Well, before we get to the good part, Ken, is it possible to get the flu and COVID-19 at the same time? Yes, you absolutely could get both at the same time. You know, what effect would that have? Well, while we, we don't obviously have the experience to go on, you can guess what it would do to be infected by two potentially deadly viruses taxing your immune system at the same time. Certainly, it's one of those things that we want to do our best to avoid. You know, COVID and flu are completely different viruses. Immunity to one doesn't help with immunity to another. So you could even get one, recover, and then get the other one after that. Mm-hmm. That would certainly be um, pretty tough for your body to handle anybody's body, even if you were a, a healthy person. Exactly, because um, even healthy people, we're seeing some prolonged effects, especially of COVID, where people just are taking you know weeks to sometimes even months to get back to normal. Right. Even after they've, te- long after they've tested negative, you hear a lot of people talk about how they still just don't feel right, even after they've technically yeah. recovered. 
Yeah. yeah, the prolonged fatigue is something that certain seems to be fairly unique to this virus. Yeah. We often look to the Southern Hemisphere, especially countries like Australia, where flu season runs from like March until August or so, to get clues about what our flu season may hold. What has it been like in those areas in this very unique year? And what can that tell us about what might happen here? You know, there's some interesting things going on because, well, you know, one thing we've learned is that if people do everything that they can to protect themselves from COVID, like masks, social distancing, washing hands, etc., we actually may not really see much of a flu season. However, you know, again, with the current rate of cases of COVID, whether those strategies are in full force here in the U.S. is seriously up for debate. There is something interesting going on in the Southern Hemisphere, though. We essentially haven't seen much of a flu season in many areas um, in the Southern Hemisphere this year. But there are potentially some important differences in what's happening in countries like Chile, Brazil, and Australia, like you mentioned, other countries in the Southern Hemisphere. Many of these countries have strict travel restrictions, much stricter than what we have in the U.S. or even Europe. So people from other countries here could easily bring in the, in the flu or COVID into the U.S. And many people aren't wearing masks. Unfortunately, they don't believe they work, so they're not using them, even though there's much science, you know, tons of science to support them. And now more and more case reports of masks seemingly preventing spread, even when people are infected mm. and around other people. But the question is, will people institute those habits in a more aggressive manner than it seems they have been? so far, but, you know, it only works if we're all wearing them. Time will right. tell if we have the minimal flu season here, like they seem to be having in the Southern Hemisphere, probably related to all the precautions that they're taking to prevent COVID, are also actually preventing the flu. And then let you know what we could do in the future to actually contain the flu seasons going forward. Right. Because it, to your point, it does seem like the things we're already doing, or a lot of people are already doing washing hands, wearing masks, staying away from other people. Seems like it would protect you from the flu as well as COVID. But I mean, the case numbers from the U.S. alone can tell us that a lot of people probably aren't doing those things. That's absolutely right. And COVID spreads the same way that the flu does. So whatever we do for one is going to help the other. Right. Well, time will tell, I guess, as we get closer to the fall and winter when our, when our flu season typically begins, which flu season, of course, is something that healthcare providers and public health officials gear up for every year, no matter what's going on. But this year is obviously going to be very different. How are preparations changing as these same professionals are also fighting COVID-19? Well, so, you know, we're certainly keeping our fingers crossed that the measures many people are taking to prevent spread of COVID will help prevent spread of the flu, but we can't really rely on that. So you're going to see a big push for flu vaccines this year. We already are, and rightly so. You know, symptoms of the flu and COVID are quite similar. So the more effectively we can prevent the flu, the less impact it'll have on us navigating through COVID this fall and winter. What I'm talking about is that using valuable COVID resources like testing when people actually have the flu. So mm -hmm. if we can prevent the flu, then we're going to have less confusion over which one you have. So, you know, of course, hospitals are trying to keep as much PPE, PPE on hand as they can. And, and that need will only grow if we see a surge in the flu. So 
preparations are already in full force for that. You know, assuming the worst, hopefully we won't come anywhere near that, but really predicting what's going to happen right now is somewhat challenging. And, you know, sometimes the flu gets overlooked in terms of how big a threat it can be to your health. Um, you know, at the start of COVID-19, we heard a lot of people say, oh, it's just like the flu, it's no big deal. Um, but is there anything you'd like for people to know about that? Well, you know, we, we talked earlier about the impact that even last year's flu season had on hospitalizations and deaths. I, I really think most people have no idea. We are so closely tracking COVID numbers. People never, there are people tracking flu numbers, but we're, let's be honest, no one pays attention, right? right? So they don't understand the impact that even a regular flu season has on hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, even at the lowest estimates, tens of thousands of people died from last year's flu season. It was a worse than average year, so thankfully there are some seasons where the flu season is much more mild. And while flu and COVID are both respiratory viruses that can have similar symptoms, there really are some very important differences. Thankfully, the, t the death rate from COVID seems to be much less than it appeared earlier on in the pandemic, but the death rate is still far greater than the flu. Significantly more people are going to get seriously ill and die from COVID than the flu. That's easily understood, really, when you note that over 170,000 people in the U.S. alone have already died from COVID, already far more than last year's flu season, which was you know, already worse than average. And obviously, we're going to continue to see more COVID deaths as time goes on. Right now, we're, we're seeing a little over 1,000 new deaths a day across the country, but it does. Uh, it seems like maybe by next week or so, we'll start to see those numbers fall, thankfully. But to be clear, this isn't just hype or not getting the numbers right, which some people, which I've heard some arguments. You know, sure, we will absolutely see updates along the way, improvements in testing, et cetera. But in the end, COVID will kill far more people than thankfully we ever see from the flu in a given year. Right. Um, let's talk about some of the other differences between the two diseases, um, specifically symptoms. How would you know if you had the flu or COVID? Um, do you have to have a COVID test to find out or would you be able to tell by the symptoms that you have? Honestly, there's really no way to tell without testing. The symptoms are largely the same. Now, there could be some signs like loss of taste and smell might point you more towards COVID, but the truth is that can even happen with the flu. We just haven't really heard about it much before. So the symptoms, there's very, there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms. So the only way you're going to know which you have is to get a COVID and or flu test. Okay, so you can't, it's not a good idea to just sort of sit at home and diagnose yourself based on what symptoms you think you might have. Well, um, the, you know, again, if you have mild to moderate symptoms of either COVID or the flu, staying at home is the best thing that you can do, getting rest, et cetera. So it's not less necessarily that you have to rush out because you don't necessarily need medical treatment for either one if you have more mild symptoms. Gotcha. Um, well, to that point, I mean, what, regardless of whether you have the flu or COVID, are the things that you do to take care of yourself or to protect others really going to be all that different? No, the, actually, the treatment for mild to moderate flu and COVID are, are largely the same. Treat the symptoms with fever reducing and pain medication, 
you know, relieve the symptoms, get rest, stay hydrated. There is one important difference though. And one reason we test for the flu is that there is an effective antiviral medication for the flu, medicine that will shorten duration of symptoms by a day or so, which can honestly seem like a lot when you have the flu and you feel that bad. Right now, and you know, hopefully this is going to change over time, we actually don't have an effective at-home treatment that we know is helpful for COVID. Those treatments are under study, but at this point, treatments are generally largely reserved for the sickest patients in the hospital and as part of a research trial. Another key difference, obviously, is that there is a vaccine for the flu, which you've mentioned before, and um, it's a key part every year of keeping the virus under control. But medical experts are concerned about actually getting enough people to get it this year. Why is that? Well, people are still concerned about being around other people. You know, getting a flu, sh flu shot means either going to your doctor's office or a flu shot clinic like your local drugstore, both of which would expose you to other people. However, I want people to understand these types of places are taking ultimate precautions. And if you do the same, the risk of being exposed to COVID is quite low. Wear a mask, follow their instructions on when to come in, where to wait, etc. Get your shot and get out of there. And, you know, in my opinion, the benefit of getting the flu shot far outweighs any risk if you take those precautionary steps. I know for one, I'll be getting mine. Same here. Um, but also, I mean, people who, you know, a lot of people like us at WebMD, other offices and workplaces around the country, they often give flu shots, um, you know, to, to their employees. And since people aren't going to work, people might have to start making other plans as to how they'll get those this year. Right. So make, make your plans now. Yeah, exactly. Figure out another way. People who've listened to this podcast, who've visited WebMD know that we talk a lot about the need to get a flu shot every year. And every year we also say, no, you can't get the flu from the flu vaccine. But how do you explain that when someone says to you, but I feel like I get sick after I get my flu shot? Such an important question. It is biologically and scientifically impossible to get the flu from a flu shot. The flu virus isn't even alive. It cannot cause the flu, period. There's, there's just no debate about that. That said, some people, very few people, may feel a little run down for a day or two afterwards. That's not the flu. That's just your immune system's reaction to building up immunity to the flu virus. It's nothing like having the flu, but maybe just a little bit more tired than normal. No, but one thing that gets people is they say, I got the flu one week after getting the flu shot. Well, that's oh, because yeah. it takes up to two weeks for the flu shot to take full effect. So that's why we do suggest getting it earlier on in the season, because you can't wait till the last minute and expect to be protected right away. It just doesn't work that way. Well, but how early is too early, though? Because I driving around town, I have seen uh, pharmacies advertising flu shots and it's still August, you know, and flu season typically doesn't pick up until, you know, October, November. Yeah. So even though you're seeing the flu shot is available. It's probably best, unless you're already at the doctor's office, go ahead and get it. But otherwise, it's probably best to wait just a bit longer. The effect of the flu vaccine can wane over time so that if you get it now, you may not be protected later in the flu season. The optimal time is September, which we're almost there, or certainly no later than the end of October. But I would say once September rolls around, I'd make arrangements to get it. Okay, that's good to know. 
And speaking of vaccines, uh, can you give us an update on where things seem to be with a COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, there are really, honestly, several exciting advancements in there in just the last week or so. So if all goes well, it looks like we could have a COVID-19 vaccine ready by early 2021. There are close to 200 vaccines under development, and, and several are actually in phase three trials, which is the final step to prove that a vaccine is safe and effective before it's submitted to the FDA for approval. But in the last few days, we've even heard that there could be some supply of vaccines, maybe tens of millions of vaccines available by the end of this year, by the end of 2020. Wow. But remember, there are over 300 million people in the U.S. So we're not talking about being able to vaccinate everybody this year, but you know, there are many researchers and agencies working towards hopefully having vaccines available for everyone in early 2021. I've even heard some estimates of you know, maybe even January or February. And a lot of experts think, fingers crossed, keep your toes crossed, or whatever, that this pandemic could be over, over wow. by the spring. I mean, it's an extremely lofty goal, let's be clear, but so stay tuned for more. But there's certainly lots of changes going on in the area of vaccine development for this pandemic. That's extraordinary progress considering, you know, it used to take years to get a vaccine developed and this has happened in just a few months. It's pretty darn impressive, I have to say. Um, and thankfully, because this seems to be the only thing that's going to bring this thing to a close. I also want to ask you about another story we heard this week. It was the first documented case of a person who had recovered from COVID-19 getting reinfected with the coronavirus. Can you tell us the details? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. There have been reports of people being infected more than once, but no real proof until now. Um, researchers in Hong Kong confirmed that a 33-year-old man who had COVID-19 in March has tested it positive again. So in March, he had mild symptoms, and he was actually tested a couple of times over the following month and tested negative twice. But just earlier this month in August, uh, when he was returning from Hong Kong from outside the country, he was screened in the airport with a COVID saliva test, and he once again tested positive. And I'll tell you why in a minute this case is different. So he didn't have any symptoms this time, and the infection resolved. But the reason that we know this is a real reinfection is that both times he was infected, his doctors tested the genetic makeup of the virus. And the second time, it was actually slightly different than the first time. So this wasn't the same virus just hanging around. It was a slightly different strain. The virus had mutated. So for the first time, we have proof that this coronavirus can infect the same person twice. And the fact that the virus mutated slightly likely contributed to that. Right. I guess that's important to note because some people will, you know, the virus can sort of make them feel sick for a while and then they seem to get better and then might feel sick again. But now we know for sure that that's not what happened here. Um, that's right. And as you noted just a second ago, this person had no symptoms from his second infection. Um, and I know it's probably early to tell and this is just one case, but do you think that's unique to his case, or would that be something that everyone could expect if they happened to get reinfected? Well, based on what we know about this particular case, it actually makes sense. And it does suggest that the second infection for anyone else may be more mild than the first. So the first time he was infected, his symptoms were mild, and he actually 
did not develop any detectable antibodies in response to the infection. And actually, other research also shows that people with milder infections may not develop a strong immune response and that their antibody levels may fall to undetectable levels within a few months. Now, that doesn't mean they're not immune, but it suggests the immunity may not be particularly strong. So the second time the man in Hong Kong was infected, he developed a strong immune response with high antibody levels. And like you said, the second time he had no symptoms. It really shows that his immune system was doing its job. Since he was infected once before, his immune system was already primed to respond to the infection. That means it was already revved up to fight the infection because it had some memory of the virus. Even though the strain was slightly different, they were similar enough that his immune system was able to mount a response and resolve the infection without developing any symptoms. That's interesting because I know I've heard a lot of people assume that after they've had the virus, they're protected from getting it again. Maybe some might extend that logic and think, oh, I don't need to wear a mask or I won't need to get that COVID vaccine whenever it becomes available. And, you know, just uh, this is obviously just one case and scientists need to do more research on people who maybe get reinfected. But do you think there's an overall message about immunity that we should take away from this right now? You know, this really does give us some insight into the immunity with this virus, and it is actually very relevant to vaccine development and, and the need to continue to practice safety if you've been infected once. So remember, when, when you're protecting yourself, it's not just about you. It's about all those others that you could infect. So you get infected with a second strain, even if it doesn't significantly infect you, you could spread it to someone else. So we know that after being infect infected, people develop an immune response, but the question really has been, how strong is that response? And, and now we actually have confirmation that in some cases at least, the immunity still doesn't protect from reinfection. Now, the good news is it may protect from serious infection based on what we know in this case. So we have good evidence that the virus can mutate similar to other coronaviruses that circle the globe each year, but they obviously don't cause the severe disease that we see with this one. And now it's possible for someone to be infected more than once from a slightly different strain. So really this suggests we may need a vaccine booster to maintain immunity or that a vaccine needs to protect us from more than one strain, actually similar to what we do with the flu vaccine, the seasonal flu vaccine, or potentially the vaccine may need to attack the virus in more than one way to give us broader protection. It's just too early to jump to conclusions right now, but it does suggest that you know, potentially a one-time vaccine may not be enough. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that this could certainly tell us a lot about, you know, I'm sure the scientists who are developing the vaccine are watching this uh, very closely. That's interesting. It's always been a concern, and now it's a, a slightly more of a concern because we know it absolutely can happen, but we know these types of viruses can mutate, which means that immunity one, immunity to one doesn't give 100% immunity to another. Right. Um, lastly, I know we've talked about this before, but it's still out there, this idea of herd immunity. 
are we any closer to achieving that or is that something that's still a long way off? Yeah, well, theoretically, you know, we get a tiny bit closer every day as more people are infected and presumably have some degree of immunity. Of course, that kind of one of the big questions that we've been discussing here is what level of immunity do people develop after being infected? And an important consideration is how long does that immunity last? You know, actually, herd immunity occurs when enough people are immune that the virus can no longer easily hop from person to person. It doesn't mean that, the, that it's completely gone, but it's just very well contained. Mm. So in the case with the man in Hong Kong, we don't know, actually, if he was able to spread the virus to someone else. So we don't really know if that level of immunity um, would help us get towards herd immunity. So, it, you know, estimates are it would take anywhere from 50 to 70% of the population to be immune in order to reach herd immunity. Even at the low end of that, in the U.S., we're talking over 160 million people wow. having been infected. But currently, we're approaching 6 million. And estimates are, let's say that we've even infected, or the virus has infected even three times that let's say 20 million people. That's a long way from the 160 to 200 million people that need to be immune for herd immunity to be effective. So we're nowhere close to where we need to be, and we certainly don't want to go through what we'd have to go through to get there. And that's really why our hope is, is really resting on a vaccine at this point. That makes sense. Um, Dr. Michael Smith, thank you so much for all the information today. Um, good things for people to remember as they're protecting, protecting themselves from possibly two viruses uh, in the coming months. Happy to be here. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time.